Hello, everyone. I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas from International Programs. Glad to have you with us tonight as we talk about Italian art and culture. We're coming to you from the beautiful Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa, and I'd like to begin by thanking our partners, UITV, the University of Iowa Pentecrest Museums, KRUI-FM, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM. Tonight our guests will guide us through the early history of the region we now know as Italy, which witnessed the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the brilliance of the Renaissance, and now is home to the modern-day Italian Republic. We'll learn about the development of the operatic art form, take a close look at the life of the great Italian composer Giuseppe Verdi, and hear a selection of arias performed live by University of Iowa students. We'll discuss Italian cinema and the important role it's played in not only telling Italy's story, but advancing the art of filmmaking. And we'll begin by taking a tourist look at this wondrous country, reflecting on the expectations of the first-time traveler and the observations of experience. Um, I'll introduce for uh, just a moment here the people who are sitting next to me on stage. Kathleen Kamerick is uh, here in the, the pink, and Irene Lottini is just next to me. Roberta Marvin is at the other uh, end of the uh, group of guests, and I'll give fuller introductions to just who these people are in a couple of minutes. But first, I'd like to share an audio postcard that was prepared by Hunter Sharpless. Hunter Sharpless is a University of Iowa English major from Dallas, Texas, who is currently studying abroad in Turin, Italy. I first encountered Hunter when reading the UI Study Abroad blog. Uh, these posts would come through my mailbox from time to time, and they were reflections and observations made by an American in Italy that I thought were touching and funny, insightful, and evocative. So after planning this program for a little while, I thought I would ask Hunter if he could join us. And he said, yeah, sure, I'd love to, but I don't come back from Italy until the end of the summer. So I asked him if he would put together an audio postcard, and this is what he's sent us. This is from Hunter Sharpless. In the morning, we wake early. We shower, we get dressed, and we take the metro to Porta Nuova, the main train station in Turin. It is busy. There are people watering some green plants. People's necks are craned up to the sign showing the times, platforms, stops, and final destinations of the trains. Each time a train leaves or arrives, a voice over speakers announces it. In this station, there's an underwear store, a bookstore, and some clothing stores. After an espresso and brioche, we take a train from platform 13 to Kivasso, and then another train from Kivasso to Aosta. On that train, we meet a Roman named Luigi. We meet a woman from Sicily whose hair is white, whose teeth are crooked. Then we take a bus from Aosta up to Kormayer. Kormayer is a town of a few thousand people an expensive town, a clean town, a town five kilometers from France, a town near Mont Blanc or Monte Bianco. On the bus, we listen to Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, and we pass a few castles. We pass signs with French words and signs with Italian words and signs with words in both languages. We pass some yellow flowers, some purple flowers, some white flowers, always ascending the mountain. We pass a man gardening his garden. Virginia Woolf writes, For the eye has this strange property. It rests only on beauty. 
Like a butterfly, it seeks color and basks in warmth. We pass snow-capped peaks. We pass snowless peaks. And we pass trees and thousands of shades of green. We pass cliffs. We pass a waterfall. And we pass someone driving a blue Ford. We pass sprinklers. We pass the miniature rainbows created by the sunlight piercing the airborne water. We pass a sign that says, in one kilometer, rocks will be falling. We pass some graffiti, a well-groomed soccer field, a crucifix, a sign that says, in two and a half kilometers, deer will be jumping, and we arrive in Kourmayed. We sit down at a cafe with a glass of local red wine, recommended by the proprietor, and we take out something I wrote about via Roma and via Po, the posh, vivacious, and informative city center of my beloved Turin. It is scribbled in messy handwriting, with highlighter marks and red pen corrections covering the sheet. On Via Roma, there is a store called Zara, and there is also Zara Home. There is Max Mara, and there is Max and Company. There is Calvin Klein, and there is Calvin Klein Jeans. There is Swatch and Sephora, and there is a beggar with two dogs and a sign that reads, Abbiamo Fame. There is Fratelli Rosetti. Timberland, OVS Industry, Tommy Hilfiger, and there's someone wearing a Yankees hat, someone in purple pants, another beggar, some people playing some instrument, a man from the Ivory Coast who speaks French and paints postcard-sized paintings. There's Foot Locker, Louis Vuitton, United Colors of Benetton, United Colors of Benetton for Children, Lacoste, H&M, Massimo Dutti, Giorgio Armani, Scotland, and a picture of Marilyn Monroe. Crossing a street, I pass between two churches, between two fountains, between two statues, and am in Piazza San Carlo. Past this is another stretch of Via Roma and then Piazza Castello, where you can see a castle, some fountains, some swaggering carabinieri, and a building that Mussolini erected. I turn right on Via Po after passing an ad that says totally sexy in English. After passing an ad that says advanced perfect body in English. After passing McDonald's. Halfway down Via Po, I realize I haven't had coffee this morning. So, after passing Nietzsche's old street, and after walking where Primo Levi had walked, I stop inside a cafe that Herman Melville had been to a cafe that Mark Twain had been to, because I want an espresso. And after the espresso, I catch a bus and go home. So that's an audio postcard that Hunter Sharpless prepared for us. And, and I loved it. You hear the buses, you hear the sprinklers, and, uh, and then you know his reflections as he's going up this uh, mountain. And uh, Kathleen, I'm going to turn it to you. First, I should mention that you teach in history departments, mm -hmm. and you specialize in medieval and early modern European history and history of the book, women's history. But I also know that you go from Italy from time to, to Italy from time to time and um, have your own thoughts about this place. Well, I, lo I love Italy, and, um, but I'm not a specialist, so I speak here for the tourists, <laughs> for everyone who has traveled to Italy and simply fallen in love with it, and that's really where I'm at. Um, had I fallen in love with it earlier, had I gone to Italy earlier, I think I would have changed the direction of what I was doing, to be honest. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. So was there anything that, that you heard in this little postcard that, that reminded you of things you'd seen or things you'd felt? Yeah, one of the things that um, Hunter talked about, and um, it's important, is the, um, is the uh, encounter of what's present in Italy today. Because so often when we go there, we're looking for the past. And sometimes that past is the past of ancient Rome. Um, for me, it's often the past of the Middle Ages or of the Baroque period. And yet there's a vibrant country that exists there today. And so one of the things that I like about visiting Italy is to see these things side by side. It teaches me something about how to think about history, to see the 21st century n next to the third century BCE, for instance. Um, and when I visit places, I try to pay attention to that. Um, I'll give you an example of that. I was in Rome over spring break, a very quick trip, too quick. And um, my husband and I went to visit a church um, that we had wanted to see, um, and this was the uh, Church of Santa Constanza. And it's a beautiful old um, church, and there's another church called Santa Ignazi right by it. And, and they're gorgeous, and they're ancient, and they have ancient things to see, and so you can learn a lot about medieval art and um, uh, architecture by looking at them. But right next to them is a shrine where people still today are leaving ex-photos or expressions of desire or prayers and concerns that they have today. And I spent a lot of time looking at that too. And Italy presents these things side by side in a very um, moving, I think, and expressive way. You don't find it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, compare it to some of the other places that you've visited and that you've, you've studied. What would be the difference with Northern Europe, do you think, from what you've seen in Italy? Um, I, I, I study the history of religion, and um, that's uh, one of my research interests. And in Northern Europe, um, much of that history of the past, the Middle Ages, is very much past. In Italy, it seems to me there's more of a continuing strand into the present, so that there's a living tradition that uh, has a... Um, it has a continuation with centuries and centuries and centuries ago. And I think in some parts of the world that living tradition has either been cut at some point or is harder to find. I think that might be a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Roberta Marvin is there at the, the end of our group, and Roberta is many things. Among them, she is the Associate um, Dean of International Programs now. She's a professor of music. She's a great Verdi scholar, and we'll be talking a little bit later about her work on Verdi. But you have lived for some spells in your life in Italy and, and uh, traveled there many times. Um, and I think Montemora, your maiden name, might be an Italian maiden might name. Might just might yeah. be, yes. <laughs> so so um, give us some of your thoughts about uh, what yeah. you expected in Italy and what you found? Well, I came into musicology knowing that I wanted to work on Verdi because I had fallen in love with his music. But if I had any question about it, my first trip to Italy, which was a very brief one to Bologna for a conference, um, in my first year in a master's program, I had no business doing this, and I absolutely fell in love with the country, just as Kathleen was saying. Um, I think as someone who's lived there over the course of two years, kind of on and off, um, but for long periods of time, I've come to develop an appreciation for the country in terms of how much I find the people value their history, value their culture. Um, and being someone who works on one of their great national heroes, Verdi, 
I became a kind of hero, or heroine, I should say, of sorts, to them. Because here I was, an American, there are many Americans who work on, on the music of Verdi, but a woman American in the 1980s as a student going there to live and to study their great hero. So I was an immediate celebrity. Um, besides, we, my husband and I were living in the city of Parma, which if you have not visited Parma and you've been to Italy, you must visit Parma. It's one of the great gems of the country. But it was not a city that saw a lot of American tourists in the early 80s, uh, late 80s, I should say. Uh, so we kind of became uh, adopted children of the city, and every shop we went into, uh, every bus we rode, they got to know us. And this is a city about the size, well, it's 176,000 people, or was at the time, so it's not a tiny town. Um, but we had a, a certain presence just because of the way we looked um, as Americans, and also because we made the effort to speak their language in the beginning very badly, but that didn't matter. Um, just the fact that we made the effort to speak Italian to them. Uh, they really took us under their wing. Um, one of the things that I think we were fortunate to be able to do living in a smaller city in Italy is to travel around to some other smaller cities that people would tell us about. Um, most people who go to Italy will go to Rome and Florence and Venice and Naples. Um, there are so many other cities that one can go to that just are full of culture, art, music, uh, places like Siena, Lucca, uh, um, I'm trying to think of Ravenna with all of these wonderful mosaics, of course, which are not on the beaten path, so to speak. And then living in Parma, which is a very rich cultural area, and also a rich area agriculturally speaking, of course any of you who know cheese will know Parmigiano-Reggiano, and that's where it comes from. And if you're fans of ham, the prosciutto di Parma, it's made in that region. Um, you can just drive around the countryside and find these, these little tiny villages, Langerano, for example, which is just one building after the other, after the other, after the other, which are the storehouses where they hang the prosciutto to dry. And um, it has to be from this region, I'm told, or it's not good. <laughs> um, things like that that you wouldn't normally, I think, come across if you didn't have the time to just explore. Um, tiny villages with beautiful castles containing rare artworks. Um, again, in that area, there's a castle called Torrecchiara. No one's ever heard of it. My, my husband and I went there many, many times because it was just a lovely place to walk and visit. And again, the people got used to knowing us and always wanted to talk and find out about our culture as much as we wanted to know about theirs. So it holds a very dear place in my heart. Add something to what Roberta said because um, we were staying once in the Marquet region, which Americans don't usually visit but should, and we went to a small hilltop village to have dinner. And we were seated at a long table with many other people. And as we ate dinner, someone began to sing an aria, and then other people began to sing. And we looked around, we thought we were in a Disney movie. Yeah. And um, <laughs> it was the local opera company. And they stood up and they started singing arias and everyone applauded and I thought, I, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> this yeah. is like something from, a, this is like a, a movie, an American goes to Italy and this is what happens, but it, yeah. it did. Yeah. It, was, it was fabulous. <laughs> 
Well, let's go to Irene Latini then. Uh, Irene, as I don't know what your hometown is, but I know you studied in Siena, and you can yeah. tell us more about yourself. But, but she's uh, a real present-day Italian here with us tonight. <laughs> and uh, so you see people tramping through your country all yeah. the time, coming yeah. away with these most marvelous memories. Uh, how much of it rings true with you? How much of it seems strange? See, it's interesting that they recall the attention on history and historical tradition. Oh, history and historical tradition are a source of pride for Italians, I can tell you, I'm Italian, and uh, they are source of pride. And uh, culture, education are part of our tradition. And it's important when you see that other people, people from other countries are appreciating this tradition, this history. Uh, she was mentioning a church in Rome. Uh, there is another church that I'd like to mention, that is the uh, Basilica di San Clemente. It's actually, it's an interesting example of different levels of history. You have the main basilica, that is a 12th century basilica. On a lower level, you have a fifth century basilica. And on an even lower level, you have uh, what remains from uh, Roman, ancient Roman houses. So visiting a basilica like the Basilica of San Clemente is an opportunity to tra travel to history, through history, and to discover different times, and this is a source of pride for uh, Italians. The idea of a culture that existed and existed many, many centuries, even before then Italia was created as a nation. And this is something that is, is important for our culture. At the same time, it's important they recall the attention on uh, smaller cities. I'm from a small city. I'm actually from a medieval town uh, that is between Florence and Siena. It's a medieval town. It's the hometown of a famous and important medieval writer that is Giovanni Boccaccio. Uh, the town is Certaldo. Uh, there is still the castle, the medieval castle. If people live in the castle. They are still there, and it's important that a lot of times they are not tourists coming from other places. There are people that live there and have been living there for generation and generation. The fathers used to live there, this now new generation lives there. It's a, a way to discover your tradition and your culture. I think that one of the things that uh, people who travel to Italy usually feel is that the, the people, the Italians, very warm, very welcoming, that sometimes it does feel like you're in a movie when, I, I know, uh, walking down a street in Rome on a hot summer day, an older gentleman was um, spraying off the sidewalk in front of his flower shop, and I was, as far as I could tell, the only person on the street, and so someone I don't know is yelling, ciao, bella, ciao, bella. And, you know, it's, it's a very nice greeting in the morning, and it feels a little awkward to an American when you're really not used to, to having that kind of expression. And um, it's, a, it's a wonderful place. We are curious about yeah. other people and yeah. about yeah. other yeah. cultures. At the same time, as we are pride, 
we are proud of our culture. Yeah. We are curious about other culture. Yeah, and so. sure, sure. The, the, warmth. the warmth of the Italian people really came home to us when we were living there. Um, we had been hooked up uh, with a local music teacher uh, in Parma who helped my husband to set up a workshop. My husband's a musical instrument maker. And this person n never had met us. Um, he took us into his home. He gave us his mother's alternate farmhouse to set up this workshop in. And after the workshop was set up, which took several weeks of trying to figure out how to do electric electricity when you didn't know the vocabulary to go to the store and buy what you needed, plus it's a different current, of course. You got this set up, and all of the neighborhood, this was out in the countryside, everyone in the neighborhood would come by and meet my husband and sit and watch him work and ask about what he was doing and tell him about what they did, which really made us feel like we were having a unique experience. I mean, it was more than Disney. It was something where, where I think if we had been native Italians doing this, nobody would have paid attention to us. But, but uh, we were these foreigners who were in a town where I think some of these people maybe really had never had close personal contact with Americans, and certainly not with a musicologist or a musical instrument maker. Yeah. So. I, I would agree. I mean, I think that the warmth of the Italians is exhibited in all sorts of ways to visitors. The country is swarming with tourists, and that can't be easy all the time. Uh, one of the things that impressed me on my first trip there, I knew no Italian at all. I took a phrase book with me, and I went into stores, and I opened the phrase book, and I read a phrase, and, and they understood me and gave me what I wanted. And there are other countries I've been in where this does not happen. <laughs> so you know, the Italians are really extraordinarily uh, welcoming in a, in a way that uh, marks the country as a special place. Mm -hmm. Speaking a language is a way to show respect. Mm -hmm for a culture, so if you try to speak Italian, it's, it's a really good step. <laughs> Trying was all I was <laughs> able to do at that point. Well, as is true in, in other, some other countries I, I know as well, but very, you feel it very strongly when you're in a place like Italy and you go out for dinner, and dinner isn't a half-hour affair. It's leisurely, it's intended to be leisurely. Um, you, you notice all the tables near you are also there for many hours and often, you know, all kinds of ages in a family uh, late into the evening. I mean, for me, this was just wonderful to see. Uh, yeah, well, dinner is, is not just food. It's a social event and it's important quality family time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the two things yeah. combine yeah. and uh, is important, and the appreciation of food requires mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So sure. this is right. Are you surprised sometimes by the things um, visitors say about Italy or about Italian life, and you think, oh my gosh, they just don't—they just don't understand? Well, sometimes in my head, it happens in life. Someone understands yeah. something, and yeah. someone doesn't understand. The cultural sensitivity is something important, mm -hmm. and it's important to be. Uh, to try to understand another culture, to try to approach another culture, and speaking a language, and try mm -hmm. to speak a language is already a demonstration of, a manifestation of uh, cultural sensitivity. Sure, sure. If any of you were to, maybe each of you could recommend 
some place that's off the beaten track or something that surprised you. And, and uh, if a friend said, what should I go see when I'm in Italy? Is there anything in particular you might, you might gravitate toward? There are so many things to see that, I mean, Rome is my favorite city in the world. So even to say what I would pick in Rome would be difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would um, second what Roberta has already said, and that is to say, um, if you can, get a car and drive into the countryside, mm -hmm. which is spectacular everywhere, and wander and um, get lost. And I would say this too when you're in a city that's well known, for instance in Venice, put away your map and get lost. And by getting lost, you will find things that you never would have thought about looking for before. Yeah. yeah. I guess, I mean, along those same lines, maybe not get lost, I'm afraid of getting lost, but uh, <laughs> walk on the back streets. Don't walk on the main streets. Walk yeah. in the real neighborhoods. Um, that really seems to make a difference. And don't be afraid to stay in smaller hotels or even bed and breakfast where you really can have some, some contact with the people. Um, it's, it's just an amazing experience to do that. And probably one of my favorite things to do in any country, but especially in Italy, is on a Sunday afternoon to go to any town or city and just go sit in the main square, the main piazza, at a cafe with a coffee or a glass of wine and just watch and listen. There is no better education in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is there some place you would recommend that we, that we go see? But there are the main cities like Firenze, Venice. Venice, the good way to appreciate Venice is getting lost. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is Piazza San Marco, San Marco yeah. Square, of course, but there are the more Cali, mm -hmm. the small, small, small street. And the best way to appreciate Venice is getting lost. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are the small cities. And, uh, and there is a good train service, and you can mm -hmm. travel by train. And if you don't want to drive, then it's a little scary and hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, is, this has been really fun. And um, I say thank you out there to Hunter. He may be watching us on the video stream now. So I'm pleased that he, he sent his uh, recollections of this visit to the mountains. And I'm glad you could all join us. I know most of you will be back up here later. So please thank our guests, Roberta, <laughs> Kathleen, and Irena. So next I'm uh, going to introduce you to two faculty members here at the University of Iowa, both in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And uh, just next to me here is Rob Ketterer, who teaches in the Classics Department. And next to him is Glenn Story, who teaches both in Classics and in Anthropology. And um, I thought it would be a good place to sort of go back in history a little bit and uh, talk first with Glenn about his work as an archaeologist in Sicily. And uh, then we'll go to Rob, and he can fill us in on the, oh, what, the, how many centuries the 22 centuries since the time that Glenn is looking at. So, <laughs> yeah. So, Glenn, uh, tell us what you do. You, you told me in a note that you wrote to me, well, I could talk a little bit about what a dirt archaeologist does. And so why don't you do this? Well, a dirt archaeologist, um, I'm not such a good dirt archaeologist anymore because I'm using the latest technology. I'm using ground-penetrating radar. And I got to uh, use this because of where I've been working in Italy, in Sicily. Uh, in 2000, I was invited by the landowner of a property uh, who knew that she had uh, archaeological remains on her property. And she said, I can't get 
any uh, uh, Sicilian archaeologists interested? Would, would you be interested? This is kind of a long story. And the big secret is, is of course, that she happens to be a two-time James Beard Cookbook Award winner. <laughs> and she had contacts in New York that sent them to me. But um, at any rate, um, the best way to sort of describe how I got involved as a dirt archaeologist is what a dirt archaeologist does is try and reconstruct an ancient lifeway. And, um, and when I got there, it was very interesting because I, I got... Uh, uh, um, interviewed by the local reporter, and the first thing he said to me is, what are you doing here? This is the interior of Sicily. It's, it's straight south of Cefalu, about 30 kilometers north of Enna. It's still in the department of Palermo, but it's in east-central Sicily. And he said, what are you doing here? American archaeologists want to go and work at the big Greek sites on the coast. And I said, well, first of all, I'm a Roman archaeologist, and um, uh, you know, according to uh, a great scholar, uh, Moses Finley, who wrote a book in 1971 called Ancient Sicily, he said the interior of Sicily under the Roman Empire is a great unknown. So I thought, well, um, I've been told that they think there's Roman material here, so that's what I got interested in. And then when I was speaking to the superintendent of the archaeological superintendency in Palermo, and we'd been talking about what I was interested in, and she said, wow, it's really interesting that you want to study the economy of the Roman Empire by working here. And uh, I said, yes, because you see, um, Sicily was called um, our nourishing mother by Cicero because of all the grain that is grown there. And um, as I said, I'm, I'm close to the city of Enna. This is the place where uh, Hades took Persephone down to the underworld. And the whole legend of, you know, six months of winter and six months of summer um, originated... Or in Iowa, eight months of winter. <laughs> Very good. The, uh, and, it, and it's similar to Iowa in the sense that this was kind of a, a, a smart move by the people of Enna. They they wanted to advertise that they had some of the greatest grain in the empire, and so they came up with this as almost as a, of an advertisement, as yeah. they promoted the idea that this myth took place right there. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting right there in the Iowa of Sicily, the breadbasket of, of the ancient world, and that provided lots of grain to Rome. And so um, what I found was that... Um, the, the property uh, is a, a, a 14th century Benedictine abbey, which is probably sitting on a Greco-Roman cult site. Uh, there are four natural springs that, you know, springs in Sicily are sacred places. So um, uh, there's a monastery there. And I got the radar because it's sitting right below a mountain, and I knew that there was at least two meters of... Um, alluvium that had eroded down onto the, my site. <laughs> and the radar showed beautifully that there's a structure under the abbey that is about the size of a Greco-Roman temple. Um, now getting down there is going to be the big problem and there's so much, the, the, the courtyard of this abbey is just an amazing cultural column. 
At, at, at 30 centimeters, I'm finding, uh, well, actually at 30 centimeters, I usually find a burial. And uh, like a lot of other um, courtyards of uh, uh, abbeys in, in Italy and uh, basically the rest of Europe also, there are a lot of people buried there. Um, but uh, halfway down, I dis discovered the last time I was there uh, something very surprising is what I was doing was I had a radar image that looked like possibly a statue, and I said, well, I'm thinking this might be a temple, so there might be a statue there. And I have this beautiful radar image, and it turned out to be um, uh, a bunch of uh, rocks just sitting funny. Mm -hmm. But they were sitting on top of a Roman crypt. Mm -hmm. And in the crypt, uh, there were um, just women and children buried on top of each other in about that much of soil, and there were uh, seven beautiful ceramic vessels and two glass bottles, all dating from AD 350 uh, in this deposit. And right now, um, we think that they are all victims of the earthquake of AD 362, which was centered in uh, Sicily. It actually sent a, a tsunami that, uh, that did a quite a bit of damage to Alexandria in Egypt. But this is what we think we have. One of the women had a ring that has a, a cross on it. But my colleague, uh, uh, Fabio Angelini at the University of Palermo said, that's not necessarily Christian. This whole uh, uh, area of Sicily had tremendous uh, uh, loyalty to the worship of Isis. And so he thought that might be an eye yeah. rather than a cross. And so we're still trying to um, discover this. Um, but uh, there, there have been so many surprises with this site. Uh, it may go back to Greek uh, colonial times. I do have uh, uh, Greek archaic potsherds, but um, I just received word from my uh, ceramicist, and her name is uh, Maria Gabriela Cerami, which is a really good name for a ceramicist. Um, <laughs> Uh, she's just informed me that uh, the uh, artifacts in the museum at Palermo, which she, uh, I asked her to analyze because they were uh, excavated in 1974, and that's the only previous archaeological work on the site previous to mine, there's no Greek in it. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm sad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but why should I be sad? Rome, yeah. uh, first century AD to ninth century AD is all the material. So yeah. we have much to work with. There is clearly the radar found, uh, the remnants of a structure on a field 100 kilometers, uh, 100 meters from the uh, abbey. That's almost certainly a Roman villa. Mm -hmm. And actually, hopefully, uh, next uh, year, summer of 2012, we hope to take a field school from the University of Iowa to start working on uh, excavation of that um, uh, villa and to do more soundings in the, uh, the abbey courtyard, and I'm taking the radar again to try and get better uh, uh, data for a number of areas on the property. Well, we're, we'll go to Rob in just a second, and maybe he can amplify on this a little bit, but um, one reads that there are more um, extant Greek temples in Sicily than <laughs> yes. any place else. Oh, the, the most... In Italy as well. In, yeah. the, the, in southern Italy, ex yeah. exactly. But I, I went to two of them. My, my, my ceramicist uh, took me to, uh, to uh, 
Segesta and Selinunte, and they were just spectacular, and Selinunte especially, because we went swimming in the Mediterranean, and there's the temples right, right above us, so it's a really spectacular setting. Um, but, um, you know, I, I'm really excited to know what we might have yeah. under the abbey. Right. Um, the local tradition is that it goes back to 1200 BC. I'm, I'd love to be able to prove that, but I, I, it, so far I, I don't yeah. think it's quite that old. Mm -hmm. um, my, best, uh, my best information is still a few tantalizing Greek colonial mm -hmm. sherds. There are several Greek sites around. It's very possible that my site is a rural cult site for one of these Greek uh, mm -hmm. colonies. Uh, mm -hmm. One may be kilom uh, three kilometers away. There's another that may be five kilometers away. Uh, the other mystery that sent me there was that, um, that the site is called Ganji Vecchio, which means Old Ganji. There's a medieval town very close by called Ganji. Um, but what the, the local mystery is that the Roman uh, historian Diodorus Siculus said that there was a great city uh, called uh, Engion in this region, and it's never been found. And, of course, it was a cult site uh, with uh, worship of the Cretan mother goddesses. And depending on which uh, tale uh, you hear, there could be two or three. But I do think it's notable, and the historians have noticed this, that at the Abbey of Ganji Vecchio, there were two separate manifestations of the Virgin Mary, which is very suggestive as to a possible connection with antiquity, having this being a site of mm -hmm. the mother goddesses. Mm -hmm. Wow, so that's Glenn's story, thank you. Uh, well, let's move to you, Rob, and um, I've given you all the rest of the history of Rome <laughs> that you can tell us in the next, or of Italy, rather, yeah. that you can tell us in the next 15 minutes or so, but, but move from the, the time in history that Glenn's been talking mm -hmm. about, and tell us something about the Roman Empire, how this, how this what Sicily meant to the empire. And sure. Um, could I just, before I do that, mm -hmm. um, confirm something that Irene uh, had said uh, about the Italian pride in, in the kind of continuity that you see. Um, when I was in Venice to do some research, 2006, I think, in the evening I would watch a game show called Alta Tensione, which was a sort of combination of who wants to be a millionaire and Jeopardy. And, uh, you know, slowly you, the alta tensione is who's going to win the next round and finally be the last person to answer the big question. But the questions were about Etruscans, they were about Roman history, they were about things that we put on the exams for our students and give them grades to. And these people obviously had learned this, this high and it was just part of the culture yeah. the way well, whatever Jeopardy questions you might think of. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and I was, I was impressed, impressed and abashed because I thought I learned that in graduate school. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, Sicily is part of uh, all those islands on the outside that during what we call the Punic Wars, um, the wars against Hannibal, the wars against Carthage uh, in North Africa, the Romans took away from them. The Romans were kind of accidental imperialists in a way. That is to say, there they were in the ninth, eighth centuries, uh, sitting on their hills up above the river, trying not to get malaria and um, having to run up on top of the hills every time the Tiber flooded, which it did. And the people next door would um, kind of impinge on their territory. There would be a battle and the Romans would win. 
And the great thing about the Romans was the way in which they would look at an enemy and say, they make better swords than we do. They have a better word for this than we do. They paint or sculpt or do things in this way better. And they were sponges. They just absorbed that the way they absorbed territory. Um, by the time you get to the middle of the third century BC, they've absorbed most of the um, Italian peninsula south of the Po River. Um, they run into Carthage, which is a big trading power on the other side, who also had sort of imperialistic issues. The meeting place is Sicily. Uh, and it is, I don't know if you're finding Carthaginian ruins as well, but Car Sicily is a place where the Greeks settled it, the Carthaginians decided they wanted, and in this kind of accidental expansion, the Romans took it over. Um, and as a result, then, uh, you have Roman remains sitting on top of the Greek remains um, from, what, the third century BC onwards, I suppose, as they begin to encroach on the Greek cities, on the Carthaginian holdings. Um, and so what Glenn has been looking at is, it sounds like imperial remains. By that time, Rome had owned Sicily for five centuries. And if you were rich and if you wanted a place away from Rome, as people did, you could build a shrine, well, not a shrine, but a villa, uh, something like that down there. And so there you have, I mean, layers seems to be one of the themes of this uh, program. The layers of civilization, which you can stand at the bottom of and look up and see everything from, from the 10th century BC all the way to yesterday yeah. uh, is just phenomenal in this country. Yeah. Well, you know, we were going to have another guest with us tonight who unfortunately fell ill, and that's Richard DePuma. And he studies the Etruscans, and uh, he's also an archaeologist. And, and he's been a friend of mine for a long time. And the first time I went to Rome, you know, I'd seen many of the things he said I should be sure to see. And one, of course, was the Pantheon in the middle of the city. Mm. And uh, I came back and I said, isn't it interesting how, uh, you know, when they've dug down by the side of the building, and gosh, you can look down five, six, seven feet. And he said, no, you know, actually... That's not digging down. There's, you have layers and layers and layers of sidewalks and pavement and sidewalks over these many, many centuries. And, and it was the modern life that had been built up against the church rather right. than the church sinking. And yeah. I hadn't imagined yeah. that. I mean, if we want to talk about that heritage, um, I invite you all in the audience here as you go out uh, of the old capital um, tonight is to go out, oh, about halfway into the Pentecost there, turn around and look at the old capital. And what you will see is what looks like a Greek temple on the porch there. And then you will see the building behind it with the gold dome that we all know so well on the back. The reason that's there is because of that pantheon you just spoke about. Uh, the Romans, if you think about Roman architecture, you think about curves and arches and uh, domes mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. The Pantheon is probably the greatest expression of that. But they were, the Romans were also very, very conservative. And you may build a dome, but you put a regular Greek-style porch in front of it. <laughs> and so if you go to Rome and see the Pantheon, you will see what looks like the front of a Greek temple, eight huge columns across the front, the gable on the, on the top where the Greeks would have put sculptures. Mm -hmm. And then behind is this mm -hmm. drum. Okay, that's poured concrete. If you think of Romans, think of poured concrete. <laughs> um, you know, stayed, boring archaeologists just go into ecstasies over what you can do with arcuated space. And I have to say the Pantheon is one of the most phenomenal. You ask mm -hmm. about what do you go see. Mm -hmm. You walk into this 
building, you walk first of all into this porch, like you did coming into the Pentecrest. You walk into just you know the usual squared spaces, and then suddenly you walk into this space where there is a round drum covered with marble, and then a dome over the top. And if it's a sunny day, the light is coming in, and you suddenly feel like not that you're in a building, but that you're in this great circular space. Mm -hmm. I mean, you feel the space and the light. You don't feel this heavy, heavy poured concrete. That's kind of the most amazing expression of that kind of architecture. It has been adapted again and again. If you think of Mount Vernon, um, if you think about uh, the Pantheon in, uh, in Paris, uh, if you think about the Capitol in Washington, it is that same structure with steps, uh, c a very conservative Greek front, and then the great dome behind. Walk out, uh, thank you. Um, Adrian, Marcus Aurelius, Hadrian built, built the thing mm -hmm. because he, he, he gave us that tradition which is still yeah. here and, yeah. and that comes from Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell us what, what allowed for the expansion of the Roman Empire all the way up into northern England. I mean, what, what allowed for that? I think it's that sponge-like quality that I spoke of. That is, they saw what was good, they adopted it, and moved on to the next mm -hmm. thing. And okay, yes, greed, uh, imperialist uh, ambition. Um, we are stronger than they are, so we can go up there. Uh, Glenn can talk about the economy better than I can, but a sort of constant need for bringing in the wealth, especially once they've gotten a taste sure, of that, sure. um, that gives you motive. I don't know what allowed. I think mm -hmm. it was uh, they early on figured out how to put together an army so that nobody mm -hmm. could, could oppose them. Yeah. It was the first example of globalization, really, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it's, it's really quite uh, remarkable that uh, everything uh, was integrated as much as it was. Uh, I always tell students that the, uh, the, the, the Dark Ages really began uh, not when the Roman Empire officially fell in the 5th century AD in, in, the, in the West and took a lot longer in the East, but it, Rome was really gone when uh, you're in Northern Europe and you have to light a candle because there is no longer any Roman North African olive oil to burn in your lamp anymore because it simply doesn't get shipped there. And that's in the 7th or 8th century AD, so it... it uh, the, um, a lot of the integration of this economic system lasted a, a long time, even though um, you know, it, it was really focused on south, the uh, south in, mm -hmm. in North Africa, Sicily, Eastern uh, Mediterranean were, was really better off than Italy itself, the, the peninsula itself was uh, in the fifth mm -hmm. and sixth century, where there was a collapse of the standard of living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think another answer to your question about what allowed them to do this is they latched on early to a couple of very powerful myths, and one of them was the myth of the freedom of the republic, mm -hmm. and the other was of Roman virtue. We can do this because we are Romans and everybody else is inferior to mm -hmm. us in some way. And that's a very effective way, first of all, to organize your own group and then to make other people want to be part of that group. Mm -hmm and eventually it spreads and it also gives you a core that keeps you moving when you run up against less organized, less um, 
ideologically based mm -hmm. groups. Mm -hmm. So even as they're tearing one another apart at the end of the Republic, when Julius Caesar is assassinated, when uh, greed, wealth, grabs for power uh, are what really are making the old Roman state fall apart, they're still appealing to these same notions of self-denial, of stiff upper lip, uh, of stoic approach to the vicissitudes of life, which they then kind of pass on and which you find repeated again and again, even to the founding of our own mm -hmm. republic. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's interesting. We're going to be talking with Irene in just a moment about, about films, and certainly there have been lots of movies made about about Italy yes. or things yeah. that, that happened in Italy and, and you know just going back a couple of years to Gladiator. I mean mm -hmm. if you if you take it out of take out any specific historical references, you know, whether this was a guy who actually lived and so on in Commodus. Yeah. And and you just look at the at the rich storytelling, um the, the Roman Empire seems to have just left endless story opportunities for us, for movies, for books. That, I think mm -hmm. that it really is this kind of idealistic uh, the moment when they say this is what Rome was. Right. Once Rome was right. this. And there this it is, is an Rome, American movie you know? about Rome. Yeah, the, it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I told you it was a powerful <laughs> myth. <laughs> and yeah. we love that movie, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, the thought went out. Yeah. I, I would, uh, I, I, I like Gladiator, of mm -hmm. course. Yes, I do too. But uh, actually the better movie is, is, is the one of 1964, The Fall yeah. of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the historical consultant for that was Will Durand. Really? And um, it was heavily influenced by his work, Caesar and Christ, mm -hmm. which was part mm -hmm. of that um, series that he wrote. Um, and the most uh, striking thing about it is that it really does represent uh, how the Roman Empire fell very well, even though it, it, uh, it um, uh, shows uh, things not in the right chronological order, but the spirit of it is completely yeah. right um, in, in the sense that um, uh, they refuse to, to admit the Goths. Yeah. And uh, the, the Romans were good with everybody except the Germanic peoples. Hmm. And it's the Germanic peoples who eventually bring the Roman Empire down. And they were successful with assimilating everybody yeah. except them. Because that's the other kind of myth that it's provided to us. On the one hand, Rome is the symbol of power and success yeah. and wealth and making things work and building roads and building the Pantheon and building aqueducts and having toilets that actually have water that, that, that rush through them and so forth. And on the other hand, they're the bad guys, right? They are the oppressors, they're the tyrants, they're the people that you see kind of, there's always Romans turning up in the New Testament, sometimes, mm -hmm. usually <laughs> yeah. as the bad, bad guys. Um, there are, uh, in, in the national mythologies of France, of Germany, of England, and so forth, it is always the Romans who are the oppressors from outside who have to be, who you have to adopt Roman ideas about liberty and use it back against them yeah. too. And actually, the Roman author Tacitus, the historian of the time of Nero and so forth, saw that contrast and actually, as a Roman, said, those people are better at our old kind of yeah. virtue mm. and, and liberty and so forth than we Romans have become now. We have people mm. like Nero who uh, rule yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, mm. obviously, we could go on for a long, long time, but I want to say thanks for this little glimpse into, the, into some of the history of Rome with both Rob Ketterer and Glenn Story. You'll be back a little later, so thank you both very much.
This is World Canvas, and uh, we're talking about Italian art and culture tonight. And I'm very excited now to bring Irene Lottini back up uh, to talk with us. Uh, Irene uh, is here teaching in the Italian department and also teaching courses in Italian cinema. And uh, she's put together, I think, some really interesting uh, clips from films that I think will, will uh, entrance everyone. So um, should we begin with the, the cut? Yeah. Uh, okay. I'd like to play it clip from uh, Martin Scorsese's documentary, My Voyage to Italy, Il Mio Viaggio in Italia, the original title is in Italian, and maybe we can play the first clip. Now, I'm American, so when I decided to try and make films, I naturally thought that my place was going to be in Hollywood. I mean, if you're a filmmaker in America, that's where they make the movies. But then, the more films I made, the more I realized what an indelible mark Italian cinema had left on me. So as a filmmaker, I'm kind of caught. I've never really felt like a Hollywood director, or at least what my idea of a Hollywood director is supposed to be. And obviously, I'm not an Italian filmmaker either. So I guess I to find my home somewhere in between. I suppose it's the only way I'm going to feel comfortable. Uh, these days, it seems as if American cinema is all there is, and that all the other cinemas are secondary, including Italian cinema. And that really worries me. In fact, it's the reason I'm making this documentary. The fact is, I know that if I'd never seen the films that I'm going to be talking about here, I'd be a very different person, and of course, a very different filmmaker. It's a documentary that he directed in 1999, and it's about Italian cinema and the impact of Italian cinema on Martin Scorsese. And he focuses on neorealism, and on Roberto Rossellini in particular. And the title actually, Il Mio Viaggio in Italia, My Voyage to Italy, is based on Rossellini's film, Viaggio in Italia. And the first scene that we see in Scorsese's documentary, we see a scene from uh, Paisa by Roberto Rossellini. Now, Roberto Rossellini is a director that has, has influenced uh, many directors all around the world. And there is a famous line in an Italian movie directed by Bertolucci in 1964, and this character says, non si può mica vivere senza Rossellini. One cannot live without <laughs> Rossellini. Now this statement is a little bit dramatic and mm -hmm. extreme, but it's true that Rossellini represents an important, a central uh, figure in world film history. And movies like Roma Città Aperta, Open City, really changed, mm -hmm. represented a change in film history. Mm -hmm. We need to consider that neorealism um, is the result on a particular, of a particular historical moment. Right after the fascist dictatorship, World War II and the resistance, Italian intellectuals felt the need of a social commitment. And they had the idea of art as social responsibility. So films were supposed to represent reality and represent the struggles of people during World War II. And Roma Città Aperta, Open City, is about the struggles of the resistant fighters during the Nazi occupation of Rome. And we have this famous scene that is the scene when Pina, who is a widow, uh, she has a son and she's about to get married, but the day of the wedding, her fiancé is arrested by the Nazis. She starts running after her fiancé and the Nazis shot her. 
and uh, it's a powerful scene. Maybe we can play the mm -hmm. audio because mm -hmm. we, the audio is already powerful. So she's screaming her fiance's name and she's shot and her son is actually uh, seeing this scene. And it's a very powerful scene and it's a scene that has been a big influence yeah. on Italian cinema and on world cinema actually. Well, one of the other things that's so interesting, I think, about these neorealism uh, films is um, that very often there were very few professional actors yeah. used, but everyday people. Yeah, it's the case, for example, of Ladri di Biciclette, yeah. the bicycle thief by Vittorio De Sica. The two main characters are played by non-professional actors, yeah. and the movie is about feelings, okay, yeah. the emotion of this father who um, needs a bicycle to keep his job, and but his bicycle is stolen, so when he loses his bicycle, he loses the possibility of a job. Mm -hmm. And the movie is about the feeling of and the emotion of this father and the relationship between the father and the son. Mm -hmm. And both the father and the son are played by non-professional actors. Fantastic, yeah. 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 Well, let's move to the next one. Mm -hmm. You brought some other uh, clips. What See, are we going to hear next? Uh, maybe we can play the clip uh, from Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita.
It's the famous scene with Anita Eckbert and Marcello Marzoianni into the Trevi Fountain. Yeah. And La Dolce Vita is really maybe the most uh, influential Italian film. Uh, if we consider some recent example in American cinema, uh, Woody Allen's Celebrity, 1998, is a movie, it's a reinterpretation of Fellini's La Dolce Vita with Charlie Theron uh, that plays the new Anita Egbert, or Lost in Translation by Sofia Coppola in 2003 has a scene that is this scene, the Travis Fountain scene. And also, not only on American cinema, but also in international language, uh, there is a curiosity that is important. The, the word paparazzi, paparazzi, is actually from this film. It's the last name of the photographer in La Dolce Vita, and now it's a term that is used <laughs> everywhere, almost right. everywhere to indicate right. a gossip photographer. Right. It's, a, it's an example of the impact mm -hmm. of this film mm -hmm. on world culture. Right. Now let's play the next clip without mm -hmm. an introduction first. Mm -hmm. Everybody will know what this is. The Bad and the Ugly, Il Buono, Il Brutto, Il Cattivo is a movie by Sergio Leone. It's yeah. a perfect example of this spaghetti western. And uh, this clip is actually a good example of the collaboration mm -hmm. between Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone. It's one of the most proficuous collaboration in history of cinema. And this movie is interesting because it's an example of an international production. It's an Italian production, a movie directed by an Italian director. At the same time, it was shot in Spain mm -hmm. and has three American actors mm -hmm. in the main yeah. characters. Yeah. It's really an international uh, production, international yeah. phenomenon. That is the phenomenon right. of the Spaghetti Western. Right, right, right. Yeah. And the collaboration between uh, Ennio Morricone and Sergio Leone is important because it's an example of uh, cooperation between cinema yeah. and music. We need to consider that cinema is a new art, so as a new art, it has to deal with previous mm -hmm. arts and previous media. Mm -hmm. And in Italy, 
where you have this long tradition, films had to interact with Italian historical, artistic, literary, literary and music tradition. It's an example of, uh, it's the example of um, Lucchino Visconti's films, and that is the other uh, example that I would like to play tonight, because um, Lucchino Visconti uh, had a deep knowledge of European history, uh, European art, European music, and he had a big passion for Italian opera. And actually, the movie I would like to talk about is Senso, because it's an example, it's a good example of interaction of different media. Mm-hmm. It's inspired by a short story, an Italian short story. It's set in an important historical moment that is the War of Independence against the Austrian Empire. And at the same time, it's uh, inspired by the figurative art tradition and it's it's really related to opera. It's an operatic film. The characters that have this love affairs. It's a love affair between a noble woman, an Italian noble woman and Austrian officer. The characters are melodramatic characters. The lines are melodramatic. And the same structure of the film is organized according to four parts, like four acts in an opera, in a melodrama. And actually the opening scene of the film is a performance of Il Trovatore. And at the beginning of the film, the action and the lyrics on the stage inform the action of the characters that are assisting the performer. And maybe we can play a good introduction. Bravo, col sangue vostro, 
That leads us perfectly into our yeah. next segment, next doesn't it? <laughs> we'll be talking about opera. So this is Irene Lottini. Thank you Thank so you. much. It's lovely to hear all this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, let me reintroduce the people who are next to me here. Roberta Montemora Marvin is the Associate Dean of International Programs at the University of Iowa and also the Director of the Institute for Italian Opera Studies at the UI and the Director of the Opera Studies Forum, one of 16 collaborative programs and centers housed within international programs. And Roberta is one of the world's premier Verdi scholars and the author of the recent book, Verdi the Student and Verdi the Teacher. And you know Rob a little bit already, um, uh, in addition to what he's already told you. Uh, he has an interest in how classical drama has been adapted uh, in later periods. The author of Ancient Rome and Early Opera, published in 2009, former vice president of the American Handel Society. In fact, he brought the American Handel, Soci Handel uh, Festival here to the University of Iowa for three days of concerts and uh, papers in 2003. So uh, we have some real uh, music scholars here and to talk about opera, the origin of opera, and then particularly about Giuseppe Verdi. So, uh, Roberta, uh, let me ask you a little bit about this form of, of music and theater performance, opera. Uh, why is it still alive today, do you think? Well, some people might argue whether it's <laughs> alive or not today. Um, but I think one of the real things that opera has going in its favor is that it does combine, this is, this is kind of commonplace, but I think it's really true, it combines so many different art forms. And you have the drama, you have the music, you have the visual aspect. Um, so I think that that's one thing that's extremely important. And it seems to have an appeal to a variety of people because of that. Um, however, I mean, I think we all know that many opera companies around the world have been suffering just as symphony orchestras and other musical organizations have been. So it's rather comforting to see that there seems to be a new and, and, and kind of burgeoning audience uh, for opera given all of the new technology that's bringing opera to the fore yeah. right now. Yeah because if you try to attend the HD performances at local theaters around the country, very often they're sold out long before the performance begins. There's, there's a, this is a wonderful thing, these transmissions of the live performances. Yeah, this was a, the Metropolitan Live and HD performances that I know I see many familiar faces here that I also see at those. They're shown at the Sycamore Theaters here mm -hmm. in, in Iowa City, and, and Joan's absolutely right. Often they are sold out. Um, and this is for a large, a large theater. This also happens in major cities around the country. I'm told by my colleagues in Boston that they sometimes have to travel 40 miles out of the city to find a theater in which they can get into. Um, these, these opera broadcasts were actually um, influenced. The idea to do them uh, came out of rock music. David Bowie used satellite to kind of publicized the launch of his uh, album back in 2003, his album called Reality. Um, and that seems to be where this idea came from. However, I do have to say that the Metropolitan Opera was not the first opera company to bring opera free to the public. And Well, it's not free by the man, but the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden actually was the first to begin to do this by showing it on the big screen in public parks and uh, all around uh, the British Isles. So uh, they say that they did it and the Met stole it from them. But the Metropolitan Opera's idea is yeah. slightly different from what the Royal Opera yeah. House is doing. Well, tell us about how opera got started, about the very early operas. Well, I feel like I'm a proponent for 
cultural imperialism here, but just as the <laughs> Romans gave us this building, um, the Italians invented opera. Um, there's no question about that. What happened was, I don't know if you know the music from the late 15th century, which is called polyphonic, and you have four or five or even six layers of voices which are all intertwined with one another, and it's really sexy stuff. Uh, but you can't understand a word they're saying, even if you're, you know, no Italian. And in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, the church uh, started saying, you know, we really should be able to hear the words of the mass. And so there was this pressure to write a kind of music which would support the words rather than overwhelm the words and get people thinking about unholy things because the music is so gorgeous. <laughs> um, at the same time, um, a group of scholars in Rome and in Florence, um, a man by the name of uh, Gerardo Momei in Rome, uh, and uh, Vincenzo Galilei, the father of the astronomer in Florence, got into their Aristotle and their Boethius and their, their Greek theoretical texts um, and said, gosh, you know, Greek tragedy uh, used to get people to have catharsis and peripatia and all these cool words, and we, our drama doesn't do that. Let's try to reproduce Greek tragedy. And so what they did was try to come up with a musical style, once again, that would support, not um, drown out the words. Um, and so around 1600, 1598, is a opera called Daphne, uh, in 1600, uh, a man by the name of Peri, Jacopo Peri, wrote an Euridice, which I'm pleased to say we will be able to see on this campus next fall in the context of a conference I'll be talking about briefly Great. later on. Um, and then um, Claudio Monteverdi, who is a person you probably will have heard about, put it really on its feet by writing his Orpheus and something called Ariadne. Now the thing is that all of these come from Roman poetical texts, mostly uh, people like the Metamorphoses of Ovid and so forth. These stories seem like Greek stories. It's not really Greek tragic. There's no, nothing like that because they wanted a happy ending and they wanted something <laughs> where the person could end up celebrating, um, usually a wedding or something like that. Uh, fast forward to the mid-century, it has spread to Venice where the Venetians who were always businessmen said maybe there's a money-making prospect here and they invented public theaters and Italian opera becomes the movies of the day. Every year a whole set of new um, operas uh, every uh, season and there are, there are up to a dozen opera houses in Venice by the end of the century. Um, the thing is, that Italian exuberance that you've been hearing about got to opera as well, and that whole business of having drama supported by music suddenly becomes um, drama supporting music. Um, the singers uh, and their arias and also the kind of musicality of the librettos becomes incredibly uh, elaborate. And I, I don't know how much detail you want, but around 1690, everybody says, whoa, stop, stop. The French say that we're horrible and we have to try to get back to our Greek tragic roots. And so they invent something called, that we now call opera seria. And if you've seen a Handel opera, that's probably the one in Italian you're most likely to see. That is 18th century serious opera, which is supposed to be a kind of reform Opera, and I have a clip from actually one written by Antonio Vivaldi. If we have time for that yeah, now, yeah, we'll hear just a little bit of it. Um, what yeah. I'd like to do: this is from an opera uh, called Cato in Utica. Um, Cato in Utica. Uh, it is, but it's a Roman historical episode. 
coming from that period that I was telling you about when the Roman Republic was tearing itself apart. And the characters are on the one hand Julius Caesar, and on the other hand his great enemy Cato. And because this is opera, Cato's daughter Marcia has fallen in love with Julius Caesar. Uh, totally impossible historically. This is the same character as Portia in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, who stabs herself with a knife to show that she can't she can keep a secret. That's this character, only she's in love with Caesar. And the moment comes when father and um, uh, beloved politically clearly cannot get along. And there's going to be war. And Marcia finds, her, uh, finds herself in the middle of the two. And she sings this opera, If I Stay, If I Go. that will take us to Verdi 100 uh, yeah, years absolutely. later. <laughs> my, my point here is that if we talk about Italy in the 18th century, we're really talking about five or six different countries. Um, Italy is torn apart. And Antonio Vivaldi, Mr. Four Seasons, also wrote operas. Um, but he, in the preface to his, an opera in the previous year, he was lamenting about our wretched Italy, which after the expulsion of her last kings had fallen to the point where she could no longer free herself from foreign subjugation. So there's that Roman model. Mm -hmm. It's been ripped apart. What I hear in Marcia here is Italy herself, sort of you hear bum 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 torn apart between the two forces which pull her apart. I think there is a sort of political element in that, which you find finally with the Risorgimento and Giuseppe Verdi <laughs> about 100 years, well, 150 years yeah. later. Yeah. Um, we have the French Revolution in between, Italian opera changes, but let's go Verdi. to the 19th century. Yeah. Joan said to me, let's talk about Verdi and politics. And I said, no. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. This is, of course, the 150th anniversary of the Risorgimento or the resurgence, the, the kind of Ital Italian political movement to unify itself, which goes on for a very long time. Um, there is an enormous amount of controversy these days in Verdi scholarship about his role in the political uh, scene of Italy and, and how much his music actually meant to the people. And I'm not willing to actually go on record with my opinions <laughs> in this controversy on this program. So I'm going to steer away from that, but I'll be happy to share my ideas with you in private. Um, <laughs> obviously, the controversy comes about because Verdi was an important character in the 19th century, not only a musical figure, but also a national figure. I mentioned him as a hero before. He's a hero. He's an icon, both on the stage, as a philanthropist, um, as a politician, um, and, and in, in, in various ways. Um, certainly at a time when it became very important for Italy to have that kind of a hero when they finally gained their independence and became somewhat of a unified country, really became Italy um, as a nation. 
So um, that's kind of where this, this uh, connection comes from. But having, having said that, um, I think most people, even if they're not terribly well acquainted with opera, know the name Giuseppe Verdi or have heard one of Verdi's operas. Even if you don't know you've heard it, you probably have. It's, it pervades our, our culture today. Um, knowing this and having worked on Verdi's music for a number of years, it suddenly occurred to me, how did this young boy who came from a very poor family, tavern owners in the country, come to be known as the greatest opera composer who ever lived. And I won't argue that point, it's fact, okay? <laughs> um, but not Vivaldi? Not Vivaldi. Um, but it's a, I think it's a valid question uh, that can tell us a lot, both about the music as well as about the man and about Italian culture. And hence, uh, what, what Ver Joan mentioned at the beginning, this project that I had going called Verdi the Student and Verdi the Teacher, trying to understand how he did become that composer and that man, as well as how he influenced the future of Italian opera and why he is still so popular today. Having decided to pursue this question, um, I ran up against any number of brick walls. And let me explain to you just a little bit why, because I think it's fascinating, and I hope it will give you some insight into this kind of, of work. What happens when we're dealing with a great figure in the world, a great hero of the past? Um, Rob had mentioned something about Roman myths and what a large myth it was. Well, there's a large myth and a set of myths that surround people like Verdi. We have these for people like Mozart and, and Monteverdi and, and Wagner, for example. So just indulge me for a minute while I just read to you some, some very carefully crafted words um, that I think they're mine, um, so I'm not plagiarizing, but I'd like to read them to you. Myths and legends often form with regard to composers whom history has labeled as masters. Within this corpus of tales, those pertaining to a composer's early life and musical training seem to be especially abundant. Verdi is no exception. Commentators from the composer's day to the present have formulated narratives of varying degrees of accuracy and from various viewpoints. These tales have been repeated, interpreted, reinterpreted, and misinterpreted repeatedly for over 150 years. In Verdi's case, the provincialism of early 19th century Busseto, the town where he grew up, and the pride of the modern day town have produced a scenario that is in some ways better, though in others worse than for many composers. Today, within the small community of Busseto, with many inhabitants descended from families who have been residents since Verdi's time, are preserved many bits of information that provide glimpses into Verdi's early life and training. In several instances, these pieces of the biographical puzzle furnish what might be considered clues rather than facts. And of course, those clues can at times and to lesser or greater degrees prove unreliable. Thus, the stories based upon them can be problematic, for sometimes the information was both produced and preserved selectively by those who wished for posterity to stake claims to the famous composer. To complicate matters, even Verdi's own accounts of his early life were skewed. He did not always recollect events accurately and seems to have taken pride in painting himself as a self-made man and musician, thereby making even what may promise to be the most authoritative evidence, that originating with the composer himself, 
less reliable than one might assume. Uh, I think that, that what I'm trying to get at is that when anybody's dealing with any kind of biography of a great figure from history, you run up against problems. Um, but particularly dealing with a musician and dealing with um, someone who came to be not only known as a great composer but also as this national figure. People have, I don't want to go so far as to say made up things, but interpreted them in their own way. This is a problem of history to begin with, but it's a particular problem with Verdi. So one of, one of the things that I think we need to deal with uh, when we talk about Verdi is how, again, how did he come to be that person? Um, it tells us a lot, as I said, about Italy. When Verdi was born in this small town, uh, there were no schools. It was, in fact, in the region today known as Emilia-Romagna in 1813 and, and the years immediately following that. Um, very few people were routinely schooled and many, many people were illiterate. And so for Verdi's parents, who were tavern owners and not well-educated themselves, to have made sure that their son was educated and not only that he received the kind of classical traditional education in Latin and history and rhetoric, but that he was able to pursue musical study as well is quite uh, noteworthy for the time. And thanks to them, we have this great corpus of works today. Mm -hmm. Was he an early success? Verdi was a success, a great success with his first opera, but, but um, it took him a long time to get there. Um, his, his early training was in this small town of Buceto, um, in a small music school that was run by the church organist outside of regular school time. Uh, he was kind of an apprentice as well as a pupil at that time. And um, it was very constrained because there were only certain kinds of music that were, were available to him for study. The way he learned was actually to copy out parts for the local uh, amateur music organization, the Philharmonic Society, the Societa Philharmonica, um, and also to, to copy out choral parts for the choirs. And, um, as he, as he did this, he learned what music looked like. It wasn't even copying his own music, but he learned what it looked like. He learned how to write it down. He learned how the text fit underneath the notes, and this was more or less how his, his formal training came about. Moreover, Rubb was talking about polyphony in the 15th century. Most of what Verdi studied um, was sacred polyphony during his, his early student years. Not only during the early years in Busetto, but when he meant to, went to Milan for formal study, that was really the bulk of what he studied. There were no textbooks for him to learn opera composition from um, until 1836, when I won't even call it a textbook, but somebody finally put down and published a a book that did talk about how operas were put together, um, how you used you you set certain poetic texts, what the rhythms should be, how the melodies should behave if you wanted to express things in a certain way. But by then he had already composed his his first opera or had begun composing his first opera. Um, the way that he would have learned to learned about opera was by hearing arrangements of it played in this small town by the, the, the group, the Philharmonic Society. They would have played operatic arrangements for parades, for processions, even in churches um, for, for celebratory days, not for the church service necessarily. And then he would have learned about it by studying published scores in Milan that he would have borrowed from a music store 
they had library rentals, um, and he would have borrowed them from there by attending opera at the three opera houses in Milan at the time. Um, and this would have been all contemporary, or mostly contemporary operas, composers living and composing for that season or the immediately preceding seasons in Italy. Very few older operas of the type that, that, that Rob was talking about would have been performed routinely. Uh, Mozart was, was quite often performed uh, in, in Milan in the early uh, 19th century, but nothing much earlier than that. So uh, his, his style would have been developed by listening to his contemporaries, and he would have learned what was good as well as what was not so good which I think, as we all know, is, is extremely important and I think certainly influenced him in later life. He routinely came back to talking about those student days and, and uh, what was important about what he heard in terms of music and, and how that affected what he did himself. Um, curiously enough, as a, a young man, when Verdi first went to Milan to audition for admission to the conservatory there, he was denied admission to the conservatory for three reasons. He was too old. He was 18 years old at the time. He was a foreigner, and I put that in quotation marks. He wasn't from the right province, um, so he was considered a foreigner. And his hand position on the piano was not correct. And that conservatory today bears his name. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about the music of Verdi that is particularly Italian? When you listen to it, you hear these works, or you, you know the stories, uh, does it have to be Italian? Notice my silence. Joan didn't <laughs> tell me she was going to ask me this question, and um, not that she told me all of them, but um, uh, it's, it's a, a difficult question to answer because it requires us to to begin to define what is Italian about yeah. Italian music. All and the I'm, way back to Palestrina. All the way you know. back, uh, all the way back. For Verdi, there were certain things that were Italian yeah. about music. Um, Verdi was extremely active after Italian unification in uh, a commission that the government set up to reform music education in Italy. They didn't like what was being done in the conservatories. The grand tradition of music uh, educating composers had fallen by the wayside. Singers weren't being trained properly. And worst of all, 1871, we're talking about that this commission was formed, is also the year in which the first Wagnerian opera was performed in Italy. That would have been Lohengrin on November 1st of 1871, and it was performed in Bologna. Verdi was present. Um, Verdi had mixed feelings about Wagner, as did most people in, in, uh, in Wagner's day, and most people today, for that matter. Um, but the music was so different and so foreign and so contrary to the Italian tradition. Not only musically was that Italian tradition being threatened, but uh, those of you who, who know art history know that there were art movements, that uh, Macchiaioli, for example, who were trying to throw out all of Italian tradition, or the Scapigliati, of which Arrigo Boito, one of Verdi's librettists, of course, for Otello and Falstaff, uh, was a member of that a literary movement that was trying to deny all Italian tradition and really reform things in, 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 in not always so good ways by throwing everything from the past away. Um, Verdi was very troubled by this, especially at a time when he felt that Italy needed to form a national cultural identity to to become more Italian. It was part of defining its nationhood. So he took over uh, as head of this commission to reform the conservatories mm -hmm. and really felt that 
for Italian composers to write Italian music in the time-honored tradition, they had to follow the examples of the Italian masters. Um, not that he wanted to go back and just compose what had been done in the past, but you take that tradition and you bring it together with what's modern. Modern orchestration, old forms, new forms, um, old expressive measures. Um, there were really ingenious ways that he was able to do that, certainly with his works after 1871. His string quartet, for example, his Requiem Mass, um, the two operas that he wrote, the Shakespearean operas he wrote, his Otello and his Falstaff, are really, if you look at them from one, one standpoint, very old-fashioned. Otello, for example, has every possible old-fashioned operatic convention in it. It doesn't deviate from any of those, but it is extremely modern in the way it's put together. It uses modern orchestration. It's a continuous opera. Everything is chained together the way a Wagnerian opera would have been done. Verdi's way of saying, here's how you build on the past. Here's how you make a modern Italian music. Oh, there's so much to say, and I thank you so much for, for really giving us a, a glimpse into uh, Verdi as a man and, and Verdi's music. And, and Rob, uh, thank you as well. I want to give you just a second here to tell us about what's happening in the fall. Remind everybody about what's coming up. October 27th through 30th, put it on your calendar. There is a conference being organized by the Departments of Classics and the School of Music called Recreation um, Music and the Classical Tradition. Uh, and we will be having speakers from both coasts and from the UK coming to talk about music, everything from Jacopo Perry and before all the way th through heavy metal uh, and the ways in which those have uh, the modern and not so modern music has adapted the classical tradition. The exciting thing is not only do we have speakers and our uh, call for papers brought abstracts all the way from Ankara, Turkey and Australia as well as from the United States, but the School of Music is going to be doing Peri's Eurydice uh, in the fall. There is going to be a concert by the Center for New Music, probably in this room, if I can persuade David Gomper to do it that way. Uh, and also, there will be some Italian silent films uh, with live music performed by my co-organizer, Andrew Simpson, who's a composer and also pianist. Uh, out on the East Coast and plays for these silent films. So there will be public and uh, academic things to come to, and that's at the end of October. I hope so you will be able to hear at least some of that. Wonderful. Well, and now you're leading us right into a live performance of some uh, arias with Sherry Rhodes conducting uh, two University of Iowa students. So as they come up and get settled, let me say thank you, Rob Ketterer and Roberta Marvin. Thank you so much. So this is Sherry Rhodes sitting down now just next to me, a professor in the School of Music, and she uh, is an opera conductor, has worked all over Europe, and also has been the um, professor who's gone along with a number of University of Iowa students in their uh, summers uh, in Italy, and we have two of those students here who will be singing for us, and also, I learned before the show, you've both uh, taken part in those study abroad experiences in Italy. So Sherry, thank you for being here. and, and uh, Tell us something about what you do with the kids when, when kids, students, when uh, you go to Italy. Well, we had an amazing summer last summer. I, I have to say that in the 11 years I've been here, I've taken six groups of students um, through other conservatories and universities. But for the last two trips, uh, Janice Perkins with the, the UI Studies Abroad program has been an amazing collaborator 
and gave us really uh, an experience of a lifetime. And Alison Serre was my Fior de Ligi, dream mm. Fior de Ligi. <laughs> and um, Chaz Ali Williams was the Mo or Williams Ali, <laughs> was also Ferrando. We went to Italy, we rehearsed it here, and we had the opportunity there through a collaborator, um, Dr. Roberto Andreoni, who has the IES Abroad Studies program there. And he's a composer and a musician. So he had a great passion to see this come to fruition. And we rehearsed all day. I tell opera singers always that when you go, you have three positions, one sitting and eating, <laughs> two standing, acting, singing, and three sleeping. And so they got to actually have this dream where they could see what it was like to be a professional opera singer. And for me, um, through these 11 years, several of the students have gone in to have international careers when we've taken them to Europe. So uh, Fantastic. We, did, we chose, interestingly enough, although we were in Milano, and of course that is the seat of Verdi, and I do want to talk about this amazing experience we had there that actually helped us progress into the Traviata that we did here at UI. But we chose a Mozart opera, Così fan tutte, usually my collaborator, because we believe that the, um, the skills that you need as an actor-singer, and I say that actor first instead of singer-actor, is so important and you learn that in Italian, in the recitativi of Mozart. And the other thing is, is that we like to do updated versions of this because really the Da Ponte Libretti, Da Ponte was the, the writer of the text, if you will, um, the relationships between people now and the relationships in, between people in 1790, they haven't changed much. And so yeah. we found that this was the best way to do this. We had a Baroque orchestra, and all Italians, uh, we had, a, it was a full production. It was an amazing experience uh, working with these Baroque musicians. And we had two beautiful performances. And I will say that um, it was, I've done this, I've done Cosi many, many times and conducted it many productions. But this was the best production of my life with mm -hmm. UI students better than any hmm. professional singers that I had in Germany or Switzerland. So I'm very proud of them. Wow. Well, <laughs> congratulations to, to both of you. And I know you're going to be singing for us in just a moment here, but could you very quickly tell us what, what you felt about this experience going to Italy and performing opera there? Well, for me, it was, it was just the overall sense of everything. I know, you know people had talked about the art and the culture, um, but one of the things that stuck with me when I was over there was just how you wanted to become part of their culture. You wanted to... Um, you just wanted to fit in, you wanted to speak their language, you wanted to try to understand everything. You know, when Sherry was conducting the orchestra, you know, you just sit there and listen and you could understand everything, which was, you know, you just went out of that experience just thinking, wow, I really feel like I understand the culture, I understand so much of the language too, which was, you know, I felt I could live there another month and be proficient. <laughs> so, yeah. and of course the art, you know, traveling, we, we got a chance to travel too as well. Um, you know, see just all this stuff that, I had long to see because this was my third trip to Italy, so there were some things that I still hadn't seen. Mm -hmm. You know, we went to um, we saw Da Vinci's The Lord's Supper, you know, which was just uh, an experience in and of itself. But so that was yeah. Um, as an American opera singer, there are a lot of stigmas with that when you sing in other languages, and so it was definitely intimidating to go to Italy to sing in Italian for, for Italian, Italians. You know. <laughs> And, you know, you don't want to err it up and, and have a lot of bad diction problems. But 
the people were so nice and so loving and so excited to hear it that it was, you know, it was very soothing and comforting to know that, uh, that they wanted to hear you and, and that Sherry prepared, prepared us very well. And, and it was they called Italian Boot Camp. Yeah, it, <laughs> and it was, was definitely a boot camp. But the, the thing that I loved about it was that as soon as you told someone that you were a singer, that you were an artist, that you were an, an opera singer, you were immediately held in a high regard. It wasn't like, you know, in America, you say, well, I'm a music major, and the first thing people say is, well, what are you going to do with that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but over there, it was, it was, you know, oh, my goodness, well, thank you for singing and bringing this to life. And, and it was just a totally different experience that was, it was, it was humbling. And speaking of that, there were so, I mean, there's so many things to tell you. Um, during the, the opera, it would, you could hear a pin drop. The, they listened to the story, they told the story, it was amazing. Then, of course, afterwards, we'd go out and eat, and we would sing. And so in the restaurants, of course, everyone loved it, and they would applaud. And, and we tried it at Mondo's once, and people thought we were the <laughs> We didn't care. It wasn't the same. But we have four yeah. selections that we'd like to um, sing for you today. Um, the first one is um, Chaz and Allison were the one of the cast of Traviata that we did in January. So we'll be beginning with Undi Felice, which is where Alfredo um, confesses that he's loved her more than a year. And it's really their first moment of serious love. The second one will be Addio del Passato, which is where uh, Violetta says it's too late. And she reads a letter that kind of sums up some of the things that happens. And then we'll sing part of that aria. And then the third one is arguably the most famous Italian, tenor Italian aria, which is Una Furtiva Lagrima, which is, um, Chaz just, just closed Elixir of Love at the Englert last yes. weekend. Yes. And then um, you can see we're doing Verdi, we did Donizetti, and we're going backwards. We like to close with the duo at the end of the opera Così Fantute that we did, which is um, Fra gli Amplessi. Um, and there's so much to say, but I think we're running out of time, so I think yeah. we'll get to the Great. piano, and then afterwards we yeah. can speak if there's time. Absolutely, so absolutely. So please go get settled. And we have uh, Chaz Williams-Ali and Allison Cher, along with Sherry Rhodes at the piano. Yeah. 
Yeah. 
So you've been listening to a performance here by two University of Iowa students and by Sherry Rhodes. Thank you, Sherry. Sherry Rhodes, and we have Allison Cher. Zare, excuse me. And, um, and now I've forgotten your name. Chaz Williams Ali. Terrific, fantastic. Thank you all so much. Let me give my outgoing remarks here, and then we'll have another big hand for everybody. Uh, World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. Production partners are UITV, the UI Pentecrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. This program will be broadcast on cable services around the state, on Iowa Public Radio, and our K on KRUI-FM. And uh, free listening will be available on the Public Radio Exchange. We now have podcasts available on iTunes, so please, if you've missed any of the programs this year or you want to hear them again, check them out on iTunes. This was our final World Canvas for this season. We'll be back in September, September 23rd. I think a real interesting program on comics, creativity, and culture. So have a great summer. Thank you for coming tonight, and a big hand for our guests. Huh? <laughs>